It was completely dark. I see him standing at the back door. Bam! He's getting some kind of sick thrill from what he's doing. He just got pleasure in inflicting pain on other people. As soon as I walked in, the blood had just soaked all the way through. He looked over his shoulder as I drew my weapon. He chased her, he hit her with an axe handle. A blunt instrument to beat the victims to death. It was just so brutal. There was no emotion. He's a serial killer. Traumatic, it was devastating. It was like front page news. It was like a big deal. I mean, it was always there every day. Thank God we stopped me. The windswept town of Kingman sits in the high desert of Northwest Arizona. Fabled Route 66, the mother road that ran from Chicago to Santa Monica, used to cut through the city. Interstate 40 overtook it decades ago, but reminders of the old highway are everywhere. The Route 66 gift shop, Mr. D's Route 66 diner, 66 auto sales. In the old part of town, I-40 intersects with US-93. Three hours in one direction is Phoenix. A couple hours in another sits Las Vegas. An unlikely place to figure in two notorious Colorado murders. Tucked into one corner of that I-40 US-93 interchange is a huge truck stop. Big rigs idling while drivers refill their coffee cups or catch some Z's in a sleeper. Trucks coming and going all day and all night. It was there late on the night of January 26, 1984, that a manager saw three or four people he assumed were hitchhikers hanging around, up to no good. He told them to leave. A few days later, that manager would look at a photograph and identify one of them as a 23-year-old man with a Denver address and a string of criminal convictions from California to Florida. I'm Kevin Vaughn, an investigative reporter at Nine News in Denver. This is part two of Blame, the Fear All These Years. We're telling the story of a series of hammer attacks in the Denver area in January 1984 that left four people dead. Attacks that terrified a community. Investigations that were ice cold for decades before a breakthrough in 2018 that led to the identification of a suspect. If you haven't listened to those first five episodes, I suggest you hit pause, go back, and check them out. We're picking up the story from there. Roy Williams is standing in the dirt driveway of a modest one-story home in a section of Kingman known to locals as Old Town. An ever-present wind blows. There's actually less wind than there used to be because of different factors. Yeah. But then there's other times when there's more wind, and it's just like what you expect, sometimes less wind and sometimes more wind because there's different um, patterns of heat going up into the atmosphere. A rocky hillside dotted with scraggly brush rises up behind the house as the gusts blow by. Have you just gotten used to the wind over the years? No, because before, like if you put, if you put your clothes out on the line, they would be possibly blown off from the line. They'd just snap them right off from the clothespins. It's not like that anymore. And people would go out to go for a run or whatever, they would have to run sideways. Especially on a bicycle, you would go down the road leaning into the wind. It was that windy. Roy Williams gestures toward the back of the property, a cane in his hand. At the time, this chain link fence wasn't there. Uh-huh. It was completely open to the desert on the backside. The time was early the morning of January 27, 1984. Roy's brother lives here now, but back then this was their parents' home. 
less than half a mile from the intersection of I-40 and US-93, and that truck stop. Roy was 31, living in a back bedroom. It was 12.05 a.m. He threw the rock. Oh, kabam! A jagged chunk of basalt. No, I just heard something that was like a subliminal, almost a bone conduction sound, just... And at first I thought somebody just punched me right in the chin or something. It's only later that I found it was my forehead. Do you know how big the rock was? 25 pounds, about this big. That rock cracked one of his ribs and tore open a huge gash in his head. And how many stitches did it take to close that wound? About 85. 85 stitches. Mm. He woke me up and I said, what did you do that for? As calm as I could say it. So you're sound asleep and you get hit by a rock. Mm -hmm. I've never had anything like that happen to me while I was sound asleep, but did you have any idea even what was going on at first? Well, I knew it was a very serious situation if I didn't handle myself correctly, and it could have been serious even no matter what I did. Mm -hmm. I just tried to keep calm and and throw him off his game, you know, which I did. You know, it was completely dark. He couldn't make out much, just... Mainly it was a voice in the darkness and partly a silhouette. Well, that's the first thing he said. Oh, you guys turning me into the police or something like that. But he said it um, very quietly. And then he started talking a little bit more and he got more and more quiet the more he talked, so I couldn't really follow what he was saying. He had a very distinctive voice. He just sounded very hesitant and shy or whatever. And... Did he seem like he was drunk or stoned or anything? Or did he seem uh, to have his faculties with him? No, but I think he was very disconcerted because he probably thought he would throw the rock and that would be the end of it. He would just finish me off. He wasn't at all expecting to have to have a conversation with anybody, especially a calm one. And then I, I waited for him to either make a noise where he was or to come toward me. And that was about 15 or 20 seconds. And then I heard him running up the hill there. And I got a, a revolver that was around the house and. I walked around the backyard just to see if he was still there doing something, but he wasn't. Roy was unable to describe his attacker to police. The only good clue officers had? Footprints found in the dirt around his home. About seven hours after the attack on Roy Williams, the Kingman police officer who was investigating the case noticed a man standing along an on-ramp at the I-40 US-93 interchange and suspected that he was the one who had hurled that rock. The officer asked the man what he was doing. He replied that he was hitchhiking to Las Vegas, that he had left Denver, Colorado with a truck driver named Fred, that he didn't know what company Fred worked for, that the driver Fred had dropped him off at the Union 76 truck stop. Then the officer asked the man if he could look at the soles of his shoes, after examining them, he asked the man to come to the police station and answer some questions. The man bolted, dashing over the rocky, unforgiving terrain and into a nearby canyon. The officer in pursuit and calling for backup. Within 30 minutes, they found the man hiding under a bush and got handcuffs on him. His name was Alex Christopher Ewing. At the police station, there was paperwork to do, including a two-page questionnaire. A Kingman police officer filled out part of the form, apparently as he questioned Ewing. The officer checked a box saying that Ewing was physically ill and wrote beneath it states he has a cold. Under a section that said, provide information which indicates defendant may flee if released, the officer wrote, suspect has no local ties in the community 
has been charged with two Class II felonies and caused near death to victim. Ewing filled in the second page, listing his present address as an apartment in Denver's Capitol Hill neighborhood. By that afternoon, the assault had hit the front page of the local paper. Headline, Colorado man charged with attempted murder. A Denver, Colorado man was booked into the Mojave County Jail today and charged with attempted first-degree murder and first-degree burglary after he allegedly entered a Kingman home and hit a man in the head with a 25-pound rock early this morning. Alex C. Ewing, 23, was apprehended near Clack Canyon at 7.30 a.m. after being pursued by law enforcement officials for half an hour. Mojave Daily Miner, January 27, 1984. After Ewing met with his court-appointed attorney, he added more to the story of his trip from Colorado to Kingman, saying the trucker who brought him into town drove for Coors, went by the name Polecat on the CB radio. The man, Ewing insisted, could testify to what time he dropped him off, proving he wasn't even in Kingman when Roy Williams was beaten. The attack on Roy Williams was inexplicable. A man sound asleep in his home, bashed in the head with a blunt object in the middle of the night by an assailant who slipped in through an unlocked door unleashed violence, and scampered away in the darkness. It had been 17 days since someone had surprised Patricia Louise Smith in the condominium in Lakewood on Denver's west side that she shared with her daughter and grandkids, raped her, beat her to death with a hammer, and fled undetected. And just 11 days since someone had sneaked into the Bennett family's home in the middle of the night in Aurora on the east edge of Denver, savagely beat four people with a hammer, and disappeared without a trace, leaving Bruce and Deborah Bennett and their seven-year-old daughter Melissa dead and their younger daughter Vanessa clinging to life. In hindsight, both attacks sound so similar to the assault on Roy Williams, and yet no connection was made. Right now we're still investigating uh, preliminary investigations. We have no hard suspects at this time. We're uh, doing tests at the house, which will continue uh, through tomorrow. We're investigating a number of leads at this time through telephone and also the news coverage. Let's talk a little bit about law enforcement communication and cooperation, 1984 style. Back then, when something like the attacks in Denver happened, a detective would sit down at a computer screen with a blinking green cursor and write up that staple of 60s and 70s cop shows like Dragnet, the All Points Bulletin. And that's just what a detective did the day after the Bennett murders. To all stations, request for information. Triple homicide, Aurora, Colorado. A family of four attacked in their home. 27-year-old white male, father. A 26-year-old white female, mother. And an 8-year-old white female child, daughter, killed with a blunt object. The father's throat was cut. The 8-year-old was possibly sexually assaulted. A second child, a 3-year-old white female, was also attacked with a blunt object with blows to the face and head and is in critical condition. Any agency with like M.O.s offenses or suspect information, please call. It included the names and phone numbers of several detectives, the address of the Aurora Police Department, a code to reach the department over the computer. It was sent at 4.46 p.m. Mountain Time to law enforcement agencies all over the country. Some departments made it a point to read APBs at the start of shift roll call meetings. Others cut them out and pinned them to a bulletin board, leaving it to officers to read them. In Kingman, there's no way to know what happened except this. No one drew a line between the attack on Roy Williams and the murders of three members of the Bennett family. Did you have any lingering effects from that besides just the that having to heal up? Did you have well a, for a couple of days? I had shimmerings in the dark where 
there'd be like this kind of impression of light that wasn't there really. <clears throat> sort of like stars in your eyes type of thing. And then for about two years, well, I also had a cracked rib. It, it's hard to say what the um, trajectory was, but it must have hit my head, hit my, my chest, and then it hit my bike. So do you think you had like a concussion or? No, I didn't have a concussion. I think what he didn't mainly was like, give me a whiplash injury. And then about three years later, I started having double vision. And I'm pretty sure it was because of that, that trauma of, to my head. As Roy healed, the criminal case moved slowly through the courts. And Alex Christopher Ewing, who had previous convictions in burglaries and thefts in California, Florida, and Arizona, sat in jail, unable to make the $27,400 bail. But he was not idle, using the time to hone his skills as a jailhouse lawyer. There was a June 13th, 1984 letter to the judge. To begin with, I'm sorry to have to bug you, but this is a very important matter, my life. My name is Alex Christopher Ewing. I am at this time in Mojave County Jail. I've been here in jail since January 2784, and in that time, I've only seen my attorney three times. Each time when I seen my attorney, I told him I wanted a speedy trial, and each time he said he would get right on it. Well, sir, I have to say he's lied to me. I'm still sitting down here without a court date. Later that month, another letter to the judge, again taking aim at his attorney. Sir, my name is Alex Christopher Ewing, and right now I'm in jail here in Mojave County. I've been here for five months now, and in that time, nothing has been done. So on these grounds, I want Mr. Wilkinson fired. Then came a July 10th motion for a change of counsel. I would like, please, Joe Wilkinson fired as soon as possible. He refuses to come see me. Never comes and see me when he say he will. By late July, Ewing had a new attorney and a new address. He'd been transferred out of the Mojave County Jail in Kingman, which was overcrowded, to a lockup in St. George, Utah, a five-hour drive away. On July 29th, Ewing wrote another letter and filed a flurry of motions. Dear people, I would have had my lawyer, Mr. Moon, do this, but he feels everything is just fine. I feel otherwise. My rights have been violated, and I am innocent. This is the only way I can seek help. I am not in the Mojave County Jail. I am at St. George, Utah in their jail. Respectfully, Alex C. Ewing. There was a motion for discovery. Now comes the accused, a free and natural person, and appears specially and not generally, and waive no rights, and moves the court to grant accused discovery. One invoking his Fifth Amendment rights after his attorney refused to allow him to testify before a grand jury. I feel that if I were there and the record was made clear, that would be the end of it. Because the attorney is a member of the court, this advice could be constructed as collusion, and this is a denial of due process. Motions where he tossed around legal terms like sua sponte. Motion for judge, prosecutor, lawyer to advise you when any of my rights might be violated at every stage of the game. It is the duty of the courts to be watchful of constitutional rights against any stealthy encroachments thereon. He hit on the Fourth Amendment. My day pack was seized and searched without a warrant, and at no time was I read the Miranda rights, so any evidence that you may have acquired verbal or physical will have to be deleted from the case. And wrote a motion to dismiss. Accused feels that the Sixth, Seventh, Eighth, Ninth, Tenth, Fourteenth Amendments were also violated. Accused feels that this charge should be dismissed. In the meantime, the trial kept getting pushed back. And Roy Williams wasn't really surprised. In truth, it wasn't a great case. Did that bother you, or were you? No, they didn't have that, that much evidence. They did have pretty um, direct circumstantial evidence. It was the footprints because they were very distinctive. But 
basically that's all that they really had was I was injured by somebody that attacked me and there was all these footprints in my yard that um, the tracker said that he came right into that door and went, came out the door and went up the hill there. Today, Roy Williams is circumspect about what happened to him. Do you feel lucky to have uh, come, come away from this meeting with this guy alive? Well, everybody has all kinds of um, encounters where they could have wound up dead or they keep on living. I don't think it's that uncommon. I mean, everybody probably can remember, like, they're almost in a car crash or whatever. It's not something that um, I thought a whole lot about. He's in his late 60s, facing physical ailments that have nothing to do with that assault. Yeah, about two years ago, I fell down the stairs in my house because I had sciatic, and my leg collapsed just as I was stepping down the stairs. He walks with a cane. And sometimes it's a struggle. But it's not problematic all the time. It just comes and goes. It's like yeah, flares up. A, a nerve get pinched and causes a huge reaction. Been pretty lucky with going to physical therapy and they put me through different programs of exercise and stuff. That helps? Yeah, for a while. But back then, back when he was attacked by a man with a rock in the middle of the night, he was a young man in good shape, running 10Ks and hiking in the desert. And as he looks back... Went up this ridge here and down the ridge and then up to the freeway and he went over a fence. He thinks about Ewing's ability to get away. I don't know how fast he was going, but it's pretty lucky for him that he even got over that fence. If he didn't see it, he would have ran right into it and it would have tore him up real bad. He must have ran at least a mile or possibly more. And it was just lucky that that DPS officer was coming down the interstate and saw him. Alex Christopher Ewing's bust on an attempted murder charge in Kingman could have guaranteed a long spell behind bars, but an overcrowded jail changed everything. When they stopped for gas, he had to go to the bathroom and he escaped. Next time on Blame, the fear all these years. Blame is a production of KUSA TV 9 News in Denver, Colorado, and Tegna Media. Nicole Vapp is executive producer. Anna Houston is producer and editor. I'm your host, investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn. The sound mix was by Richard Humphreys. Additional production assistance from Tim Ryan and Brian Wenland. There's much more, including photographs, interviews, and some of our old coverage of this case at 9news.com blame. If you like blame, the fear all these years, subscribe at Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or any popular podcasting app. And check out our first two investigative podcasts, Blame, was the death of Jill Wells an accident or murder? And Blame, lost at home. You can like us on our Facebook page, Blame Podcast. And if you've got suggestions or tips for a future investigative podcast, reach us at blame at 9news.com.